The reading this morning is from the text of A Course in Miracles, page 500. The Holy Spirit heeds not who looks on innocence at last, provided it is seen and recognized. For just one witness is enough if he sees truly. Simple justice asks no more. Of each one does the Holy Spirit ask if he will be the one, so justice may return to love and there be satisfied. Each special function he allots is but for this, that each one learn that love and justice are not separate, and both are strengthened by their union with each other. Without love is justice prejudiced and weak, and love without justice is impossible, for love is fair and cannot chasten without cause. What cause can be to warrant an attack upon the innocent? If justice then does love, excuse me, injustice then does love correct mistakes, but not in vengeance. For that would be unjust to innocence. You can be perfect witness to the power of love and justice if you understand it is impossible the Son of God could merit vengeance. You need not perceive in any circumstance that this is true, nor need you look to your experience within the world. Excuse me, I'm making some mistakes this morning. Let me repeat that over again. Uh, you need not perceive in every circumstance that this is true, nor need you look, look to your experience within the world which is but shadows of all that really is happening within you. The understanding that you need comes not from you, but from a larger self so great and holy that he could not doubt his innocence. God's Son has found a witness unto his sinlessness and not his sins. How little need you give the Holy Spirit that simple justice may be given you. Without impartiality, there is no justice. How can specialness be just? Judge not because you cannot, not because you are a miserable sinner too. How can the special really understand that justice is the same for everyone? To take from one to give another must be an injustice to them both since they are equal in the Holy Spirit's sight. Their father gave them the same inheritance. Who would have more or less is not aware that he has everything. He is no judge of what must be another's due because he thinks he is deprived. And so must he be envious and try to take away from whom he judges. He is not impartial and cannot fairly see another's rights because his own have been obscured to him. 
You have the right to all the universe, to perfect peace, complete deliverance from all effects of sin, and to the life eternal, joyous, and complete in every way, as God appointed for his holy Son. This is the only justice heaven knows, and all the Holy Spirit brings to earth. So you can see what a different concept of justice this presents from perhaps the one you grew up with in thinking in terms of God, salvation. That it is just that you receive your inheritance. That it would be unjust that your behavior be held against you. That it would be unjust that because of your mistakes that you did not receive your father's love. And what is needed that this happen? Only that you see that same innocence in everyone else. And once you see that same innocence, you will receive your father's love. And justly so. This morning, we are going to uh, have a question and answer time. Last time we did uh, questions that had been written in or had come through in counseling. And this will be devoted to uh, just those who wish to ask questions. This is something that we do every two or three months. I haven't actually look to see how often this is done. But isn't that about right, David? About every two or three months we'll, we'll do this. Many of you are working very hard now. You're trying very, very hard. You rise in the morning. You set your purpose. You come back to it as often as you can remember during the day. You sincerely try to turn away from anger and to try to a deeper feeling within you, a greater sincerity than mere irritation. And I know that many of you are having a very difficult time because this beginning period is difficult. There are a lot of uh, rough waters in the beginning, a great deal of confusion, even though the truth is so simple. It doesn't mean, however, that our application of it is necessarily easy in the beginning. In fact, it's quite hard. And so one thing that we might talk about this morning, and possibly you would like to raise some questions, is what kind of thing is coming up now in your life that seems to be hindering you? Is there some roadblock that you are having a hard time getting around? Knowing now what your purpose is, what seems to be making it more difficult? If you have a question on some other line, then of course that's fine too. Yes. Um, my question is a lot of psychologies and therapies um, <clears throat> indicate that problems, behavioral problems or thought problems come from subconscious or from areas within the personality that are submerged or not readily accessible for everyday living. And these therapies say, well, you have to dredge this stuff up and go through it, 
emotionally experience it before you can get better or be healed. Uh, and from my acquaintance with the Course in Miracles, it doesn't seem to be that this necessarily so or necessary. Um, what can you reflect on the subconscious and its role in our right. Yeah, I'll be glad to. Um, I'm going to try to summarize the question because uh, the, on the tape, people can't hear the question. And so I, I, I won't do justice to it because it was uh, in detail. But basically, as I understand it, the question is this. Is it necessary to go back and uh, delve into your unconscious, your past experiences, uh, as uh, many therapies seem to imply? Uh, and what does the Course in Miracles teach about uh, the unconscious. Within the world, there is indeed an unconscious. And we do things out of unconscious motives. Gail and I do a lot of marriage counseling. And I have sat and watched couples thinking that they were completely sincere and trying very hard push each other's buttons until they became very angry, even though they were sitting in a peaceful context and had just been told to try very hard to be kind and open. And then they say just the wrong thing. Now, this would be a couple. This has happened in many, many different cases. I see this all the time. Uh, this is a case in which I have become acquainted with a couple over a period of days, so I've, I've spent only hours with them. The two people have spent uh, months, uh, possibly years together. And yet they think that uh, they are saying something in complete innocence. And they are very shocked at the response that they get from their spouse as they say this particular thing, or they say it in this particular way, or they bring up this particular subject. And suddenly their spouse is angry. And they turn to Gail and me and uh, with a question mark on their face. Well, do you see how unreasonable my spouse is? Well, just in the little acquaintance that we have had with the couple, we know that this should, subject should not be brought up or the thing shouldn't be stated in this way. And so, of course, there is a level on which the two people understand this. But it to them, if you could look inside their mind, they think they are unconscious of their knowledge of the other person's ego and they think they are surprised and misunderstood and, mis and, and unfairly treated because of the reactions they get from their spouse. And so, or it doesn't have to be a spouse, the, whatever the, the two people are that, uh, that are working together. I'm thinking of a, of, a, of a young teenage couple, uh, both 19 years old, that I counseled just recently, that were, uh, uh, that were just living together. Um, and um, they, of course, were doing the same thing. I could see it just within a few minutes, what should and should not be said to each of them, and yet they were both saying the wrong thing to each other. To each other. So that appears to be unconscious. We appear to select our illnesses unconsciously. And it is never helpful to tell someone that they chose their particular accident or illness because it is not understood 
And therefore, that truth, even though it is true, will be misused and it will hurt the person. And it is a judgment by the individual who states something like that to someone who's sick. It's not as if they could really do anything about it or are actually aware of when they chose the illness or why they chose this particular one. And since we are so bad about judging against illness, thinking that it's different than uh, going to... uh, Colonel Chicken or something, or seeing a movie, or taking a walk in the park, or anything else. We, we, we look at the world and we have these things that we think are better than or worse than other things. And so, when you tell someone they chose their illness, then they feel chastised because they and you have a judgment against the illness. Whereas if you say, did you pick out that... Uh, dress and the person says yes then there is no uh, fault felt there well <laughs> maybe there is um, depending on the dress <laughs> um, so what happens as we begin our walk home is we become more aware of the contents of our minds. All these thoughts are there. And it's a very interesting process how you will see why you are doing certain things. You will see how you're choosing to set certain problems up for you that you didn't see just days before or weeks before. It suddenly is so plain. And you will know at the same time that you always knew this, but you chose to look away from it, and therefore you were not conscious of it. It's not as if the unconscious is locked in some sort of uh, external, separate uh, cage or something, or barrier, that there's some sort of a barrier that, that you yourself are not participating in that cuts the unconscious off from you. It is a choice not to be aware. But that choice is done little by little, piece by piece, day by day. And so it it serves no purpose to be mad at ourselves because we aren't conscious of something that we're not conscious of. But as you draw closer to God, and as as peace truly does become your single goal, then you will be aware of what you do to keep yourself from being peaceful you will become aware of how you sabotage your day every day the same way over and over and over and over again. Now, as to delving into the past, once again, there isn't the difference between uh, traditional psychotherapy and what A Course in Miracles is saying that there appears to be because the ego is our past. We have established a, an imaginary identity, which this church we call the ego. So each of us thinks that we were born in a particular place. We were given a certain name. We have a certain body type. We have gone through certain experiences. And this is it. This is the important real thing. And this is what we are. That is an hallucination. That is not what you are. You are something else that is so different from that that there is no overlap or even connection. No connection whatsoever. 
As people draw close to death, you can often see this dichotomy surface between their real self and their ego. Those of you who have been close to someone, as they draw close to death uh, in the days or hours or weeks or whatever it is, have pos- if you're there in the house, if you're with them, I'm not saying if you just visit them, but if you're with them as, they, as their time comes, you have noticed moments of deep peace. Possibly there was no uh, word spoken. But you felt you felt very, very peaceful around this person. It was as if, uh, almost as if they were gently glowing in some warm, peaceful way. And you felt encompassed in this love and this peace, even though maybe no words were spoken. And then five minutes later, the person is uh, seems to be fighting their death, or they seem to be revolting against the whole situation in some way. And you may think they have lost it. You may think at one moment they understand and they're peaceful and they're accepting, and at the next moment they seem to be resisting the whole thing and making many mistakes. And what so many people do at this juncture is that they try to step in and reconcile the ego with the true self of the person. And of course it cannot be done. It's a very frustrating experience to even attempt this. Those of you who have been around genuine schizophrenics, have seen the same phenomenon where the person can be peaceful and sane and happy one minute and then suddenly it's as if they put on some bizarre mask and they're a completely different individual. Those of you who have been drunk, and I know this takes in many of the congregations of the dispensable church, uh, have possibly experienced this a little bit. Here you appear to anyone who's looking at you to be thoroughly and completely sotted. Don't you? And those of you who see a drunk person, they look all drunk. But if you can go back and remember when you were drunk, don't you remember that, yes, your body was drunk, but there was a part of you that was standing back and watching the whole thing? Or if you had some sort of insane aberration, such as you got violently angry, do you remember standing back and watching yourself play this thing out? So the mind is split. But those separate areas cannot be reconciled in the the way that we think of it. They are reconciled in the sense that the light is let into the dark chambers of the mind and the darkness disappears. But you cannot force some sort of reconciliation on a verbal level to, for example, an individual who's dying. And it's a mistake to try to get someone, when they are in their ego state, to accept their death. What do you do if someone is in an ego state and they're close to death? You comfort them. You comfort their ego. You make it easier. You soothe their ego. You take them as they are at the moment, recognizing that they're in an ego state, and you don't try to change them or talk them out of anything, but you comfort them. With someone who's dying, for example, you might do everything you can to comfort them physically. But you don't cross-question them and urge them in some sort of way because that's an attempt to get the higher self and the ego to come together, and it's not possible. 
The ego will not be made better. The ego will be relinquished. What you and I will do is we will relinquish our ego. We will simply let it go the way we let go of our imaginary playmates when we were children or our belief in certain kinds of monsters. There was no fight. There was no reconciliation. We simply lost interest in kidding ourselves in that particular way because there was a greater truth that was more satisfying and therefore our interest lay in that. But you will find that as you deal with your ego and as you become more and more aware of your ego, that it is entirely your past. It is the experiences especially that you had growing up and as a very young child. I was, uh, I took uh, John and his uh, friend uh, Melissa, they're both four years old, to uh, McDonald's yesterday and uh, set out there. They, McDonald's now has a little play thing. It's a really nice little, whoever designed that, uh, either by accident or design, did something very great because it's, uh, children just love that teeny little playground that they've got out there. Uh, and all the things are used, I notice. And I sat out there for possibly two hours just watching the kids play. And they played so beautifully together. This, this was a constant turnover of kids coming in. Uh, various races and backgrounds and so forth. And various ages. So often it's said uh, that you simply cannot put an older child with a younger child. The, young, the older child will uh, abuse the younger child and so forth. This is not a good thing to do. And perhaps that is true in a school on a day-to-day -day basis. But I was very interested to see that this did not go on, even though there was this enormous turnover of children. I don't know how many children I saw over a period of a two-hour period, but it was a considerable number. And uh, they played so well together. And there was a slide, uh, and the kids uh, walked up. This, they got into the thing of walking up the slide, and then other kids would come up on top of the slide and slide down. And then there would be this avalanche in which the kids coming down would meet the kids going up. And this they just thought was tremendous fun, and everyone would tumble down and so forth. Then they got on, Then the, uh, of course, there was all kids playing on all the different places, but they got on the um, little merry-go-round kind of thing, too, and they started playing falling off and uh, I'm being crushed and, you know, so they were dragging and dragging on the ground and they were doing all kinds of things. Every once in a while, a parent would come out. <laughs> and I noticed that this, almost without exception, was the only disrupting influence. <laughs> is that someone would come out and look at it from their standpoint and judge it, and then they would scream at some child who was trying to walk up the slide, or they would get very panicked about what was happening on the merry-go-round. I did not see a single kid hurt. I saw kids that, you know, bumped and so forth, and there was a man or two or something, but, I mean, they weren't really hurt. There wasn't any real uh, hurt going on, and yet there was tremendous terror in the voice, in the eyes of most of the parents, and a great deal of judgment. 
And this always caused a sort of consternation, I noticed, when someone would come out and start making pronouncements and tell their child how they're supposed to ride the merry-go-round and how they're supposed to do this and how they're supposed to do that and you know how all that stuff that goes on. Now, in the children themselves, you saw personalities. And I know you are all aware of this. Uh, if you can just think now for a moment of the children you know and of their parents, you can see that the particular personality trait that the child adopts comes from the parents. Now, the thing that's a little confusing is it doesn't come always in the same form because the parent will not necessarily allow it to be expressed in the same form that they're expressing it. But the same intent, the same motivation is there. And so what we teach our children on an ego level is what we are afraid of and not what we're telling them to do. So we tell them to do this and tell them to do that, but that's not what they're learning. They're learning what we are afraid of on an ego level. And this, you can see, manifested in the personality of the children. So let's take, for example, parents who physically intimidate their children in order to get them to behave. Of course, it's necessary to be firm with a child, but so often parents physically intimidate the children by screaming at them, which scares a child, of course, to be screamed at, or by getting angry, which scares a child because they don't know where the anger will lead, and they've often seen it lead to a very, very unpleasant something or another, even if it hasn't been directed at the child. Possibly they saw the adult do something very unkind to, to the other spouse, or they broke something or something like that. Anger, of course, scares. Or, of course, there is more overt forms of physical intimidation. If you see a child that is a bully, it is almost always because that child is being physically intimidated by the parents or one of the parents. And so that's what the child has learned. Although the child will not do this around that parent, when they are off by themselves, they, of course, do this. Now, they don't do it in the same way because the parent may be doing it in a very subtle way. They may not be spanking the child or doing any of that. But there is some sort of menacing something that's going on there. Now you put that child in a playground and it may be, it may be a bully because that is what it's learned. So your ego and all of its... Uh, characteristics and everything you do and every way you react in various situations comes from these kinds of experiences. And it, of course, is an almost hopeless task to try to figure out everything that has happened and what triggered what and who you are to blame because who is to blame since your parents had parents also? And since whatever they did came from what their parents did, and those parents had parents and so forth, so where's the blame, blame to uh, rest? Where are you to come to an end of this? So there is, there is no dichotomy that there first appears to be between traditional psychoanalysis and, of course, in miracles, if you realize that the ego is entirely your past. And so what do you do? you eventually come to the point where you say, I no longer believe in my past. 
I no longer believe in the lessons my past has taught me. I have no opinions about anything because all of your opinions will come from your past. Everything that you think is good or bad in the world will come from your past. And it will differ from everyone else's, at least to some degree. And so you come to the point, I don't want an ego. I don't want a past. I don't want these influences. I don't want these opinions. I don't want these reactions, these prejudices. This is what will allow you to join with another person someday because you will say, their opinion is my opinion. Their wants are my wants. Their beliefs are my beliefs. I have no beliefs. I have no wants. I have no opinions. It makes no difference. What you want to do, my brother, is fine with me. You, of course, have to have reached the point where you are completely peaceful with that kind of joining before you should attempt it. Otherwise, you will have a tremendous sense of sacrifice and misuse and confusion and everything else because you don't really mean it. But that time does come. You will have no ego. You will renounce your past, not in some forceful way, but it will just drop away. And now you don't know what foods you like and don't like and what clothes you like and what your political stances and all this other stuff you won't know it because you don't want to know it because you want to be now you want to respond from the Christ within you the peace within you which is a real response you see this is what's not understood people think if they give up their past and all their opinions and on every all these subjects that they think are so important in the world that they will be blobs you know, some sort of mushed custard in the street or something. And this, of course, isn't true. You have a definite reaction when you react in peace, in the present. It's not an ego. It calls to the peace in other people. That's the difference. But you cannot react from your personal past without calling to the other egos around you, without calling to their past. And this is where the differences spring up. But that past and those opinions and those prejudices have to be looked at before they will be relinquished. And that's why there's not the difference that there seems to be between psychoanalysis and A Course in Miracles. You must look at them. You may not choose to look at them on a couch and pay $150 or $200 an hour to do that, but you may choose to do it that way. If you will simply set out to become more aware of your ego and how it operates, how you get yourself in trouble, what thoughts go through your mind, what are the dominant themes in your mind, if you will simply set out to watch your thoughts, you will begin to see these old patterns. And you will see that they go right back to your childhood. Not that that means anything, but that just happens to be the way it is. And then there will be a choice because you see why you're doing what you're doing. Because as it is now, we think we really believe these things. And we get in arguments with people and we actually think that we're right and that we are reasonable and that they're dumb and unreasonable. We really believe that. And it's not true. But every time that uh, Gail and I counsel a couple 
told you. We've, we've warned you that there are long answers to the questions. <laughs> you will see a couple taking a stand on some issue. Both of them are wrong. Always. If you have taken a stand and you find yourself at odds with another person, you are wrong. But you don't think you're wrong. You can't, you can't see how you're wrong. You sit there and you say, how could this be wrong? But the other person's doing the same thing. And so there's this standoff, do you see? Six guns and so forth, you see? The reason that both people are wrong is they have forgotten the true question, the only question, the only issue there is. Do I wish to bring peace to my brother and sister? Now, what worldly issue will stand up under that question? Because by taking a stand, you are not bringing peace to this individual. That doesn't mean you go along with what they want you to do. The ego always thinks it goes, and the ego's solution is always to go from one extreme to the other. You don't go, you don't care about this. You have no stand, except you wish to bring peace. And of course, there are occasions in which you simply cannot bring peace to this person at this time, and so you withdraw. You don't sit there and fight a useless fight. <laughs> God, wait, that was a long answer, wasn't it? You have another question? Yes. <laughs> it's very good. <laughs> that's that's a uh, the, oh the question was if I'm not upset for the reason I think which of course is a direct quote from A Course in Miracles, why then am I upset? This is an excellent question and it's something that everybody could take to heart. This question, and here is how it works. You were upset because of a thought that was in your mind before the triggering incident. And there is a great freedom and a great release that will come in your life when you begin to notice this dynamic. Here's, here's a simple thing that you can do. There's no magic to this, but here is something you can do. When you find that you are irritated or angry or any of the other ego emotions, jealous or anything else, Stop and look at the contents of your mind and see what thoughts are there. Pull off the side of the road in your car if you need to. Tell the person to wait if you're talking on the phone. Whatever it may be, if you can do so in reasonable peace, stop and just look at the contents of your mind. Don't ask any questions. Look and see what's in it. And you will begin to notice as you practice this that there was a thought that there is a thought there that was there before the triggering incident. And very often it is simply a premise that you accepted without realizing it, unconsciously if you like. And often it is a feeling of guilt. So you're walking along and you accept some premise about life and about you. And often it is, it is a guilty premise. It may be a something that's guilty about another person or it may be something that's guilty about you. I'll never learn this. I'm wrong. 
I always do this and I'm wrong. Uh, I didn't get enough sleep last night and I'm going to have to suffer all day. It's just a little fleeting thought. Um, and I've des deserved to because once again, I uh, read my book until late in the night. And I know I'm not supposed to do this, but I did it anyway. Just a fleeting little thought, you see. You set yourself up. So therefore, you must. It snuck in there, a premise. A premise about what you are. We talked about this in talking to parents and grown children. Those of you who have grown children that you talk to or that have parents that you talk to, notice often when, you're off, when you get off the phone, you are slightly depressed. Even, <laughs> or, or there, there's an argument that happens soon after that conversation with the person you're living with. Now, it has nothing to do with the conversation. The conversation may have been great. It has nothing to do with the parent or the older child. What it has to do with is a premise that you accepted during the conversation, which is that you're, like I told you, my nickname was Poncho. I'm old Poncho. I talked to one of my parents, and I get off the phone, and now I'm Poncho. I'm not Christ any longer. So the... <laughs> and they didn't do anything. And I'm sure that I had the same effect on them because... There's a part of our mind that just goes back and remembers the whole history of everything we've come through. And that teaches us that we're, that we're not spirit, we're not truth. It teaches us that we're a body that's gone through all these experiences. And so the person sort of brings this back. An old friend can do that. You certainly do not stop having contacts with your parents or your older children or your old friends in order to avoid this. This is not a happy solution to that problem. What you do is, or at least one possibility, is that before you get on the phone, as we said before here, see what it is, what is the truth you wish to carry with you during this conversation. And I have to spend a lot of time doing this. So I, I, I close my eyes and I, and I remind myself the truth. And I remind myself that I wish to remember the truth during the conversation. Not that I want to say the truth to anybody on the phone, but I want to remember it. And then when I get through with the conversation with the older friend or the grown child or whoever it may be, I must sit down. I'm at the point where I cannot let go of that just by saying, okay, go on. I can't do that. I have to sit down. And in some formal way, I have to let go of the conversation. Take up anything whatsoever that was disturbing me. One little trick you'll uh, discover is the less you talk, the less you will be disturbed by what you said. <laughs> so very often when we get around an old friend, an older child or a parent or someone like that, our tendency is to just talk too much. And, we, and then, of course, that's the ego coming forward, and that's the thing that makes the conversation hang on uh, with us. And now I've completely forgotten the question. Oh, <laughs> oh yes, okay. So you're, you're, um, you're upset because of a premise, a thought that was in your mind before the instant. You're not upset because of what happened. Now, there is a greater truth still. You are only upset because you have forgotten where you are. You are only upset because you have forgotten for a moment that you are asleep in the arms of God. That's all that we are. 
we are asleep in the arms of God, dreaming that we are all these different people instead of one son of God, one child of God, one holy divine self. The very home of God is what we are, says A Course in Miracles. You are the place where God dwells. You are God's innocence, says A Course in Miracles. You are God's meaning, says A Course in Miracles. You have forgotten that for a moment. For a moment you thought the world was important. And it will hurt you every time you think that, even when you think the what you think of as the good things, the exciting things, are important. It will hurt you. It will turn on you. Because the excitement is based on separateness. And good guys and bad guys. And so even the triumphs hurt because we can't even have a triumph in the world without there being someone who has lost. In order to gain in the world, someone must lose. Because all the value of the world is based on scarcity. What we consider to be physically attractive is based on scarcity. Value of money. The value of anything is based on the fact that some people have it and some people don't. And so even the good, wonderful, bright things in the world turn on us because we cannot accept any part of the world without accepting the whole world. I've had to learn that as a speaker, that I cannot accept compliments. I don't say anything to the person who compliments me. And there is, of course, true gratitude where someone comes up and they are truly grateful. And that doesn't hurt you because it doesn't call to your ego for someone to come up and express their sincere gratitude. It makes you feel one with the person. Somehow you both know it's something you did together. But there, of course, are people, and we've all done this ourselves, haven't we? Because we think specialness is what we want, it's what we give to other people, and we go tell them how special they are. But that makes them feel cut off and different. It's the wrong teaching. And so I've had to learn not to accept a compliment into my heart. I listen to it and I thank them, but I don't accept it in my heart because it puts me right back in the world to do that, even though my ego thinks it's exciting and happy and fun. We've got uh, five minutes. <laughs> Don't scratch your ear. If you scratch your ear, you're going to have to ask a question. Yes. Uh, there's nothing wrong with it whatsoever. It, there's no harm in it. It's perfectly innocent. But it hurts. And eventually, well, what we don't see is the connection. So let's take, for example, affairs. Let's say someone is having affairs. Now, here's one of the common um, little fantasies that people have when they're having an affair. Affair By affair, I mean uh, you're being intimate with someone you don't think you're supposed to be being intimate with. All right. On some level, you this is not quite what uh, is usual. One of the most common fantasies is that 
you're going to go off on an island. Oh, let's go off on an island someplace. Get away from all this. Because the all of this does not seem to be connected to what to the euphoria that the two people feel when they're with each other. So they seem to be very happy when they're with each other, even though there are other people being hurt by this union. And so what do they do? They try to eliminate the pain, but keep the, uh, the euphoria, the infatuation and so forth. And very often they don't even see this swirling mess they don't see that how this mess is connected with what they are doing. Now, as they, as they go along, they will begin to see that there is a connection, that they cannot choose specialness in one form without choosing it in another. So you cannot be especially happy without also being especially sad. Or let's take uh, drinking, for example. Let's say someone is drinking more than they uh, would wish to if they were sane. And we're insane whenever we choose the world in any form. We are temporarily insane. Many of you know people who are problem drinkers. They do not seem to be aware of all the things in their life that are connected to this one little thing, do they? They somehow think they can just drink and that there won't be all this stuff. I'm not talking about drinking. I'm just talking about problem drinking here. I'm talking about where there's a real uh, fear of it and, and the person uh, appears to be an alcoholic or something like that. Haven't you seen that time and time again? Or someone is taking hard drugs or something like that. I'm trying to, I'm trying to pick very uh, outstanding, unusual kind of examples here that all of you have been familiar with. You have seen people on hard drugs. You have seen people who are alcoholics. You have seen people who have had affairs. Haven't you noticed that they don't seem to be aware of all the mess that this is causing? And they truly think there's some way that they can isolate just the high without the low. So, of course, there is no harm in it. There's no guilt in it. There's no guilt in, in, in receiving the compliment into your heart and, and puffing up a little bit, but it will have its repercussion because you cannot choose part of the world without choosing all of the world. There is no way you can cut off the high from the low because it is one thing. It is separateness in some form. It is specialness in some form. And so to be singled out is to be lonely. Do you see that? To receive, for example, the Nobel Prize and receive it in your heart, which Mother Teresa didn't do, but to receive it in your heart and to think you are very special means you are very cut off. And how can you avoid feeling different and lonely and judgmental if you accept that? If you think you know more or better or, hand, or handsomer or more beautiful or anything else, then automatically you are different from your brother and your sister and you cannot feel union. You cannot feel the peace of God that comes from the joining of hearts. And so it is innocent, but it hurts. And so why do it? Children come up. Now I realize that many of you don't uh, have children. Uh, think that... Uh, well, <laughs> if you think anything that I used to think about children, then uh, 
Oh, I told you, I used to love dogs. Remember I told you that Gail and I would, uh, every time we'd see a dog, we'd point the dog out and we would just laugh and everything. Things so wonderful. I noticed that when I am a little distracted, and I, and I love to pat babies now and little children, I have on more than one occasion, uh, uh, fortunately the parents have not overheard this, on one of the more occasions I've, I've heard myself saying, good dog, oh, that's such a good dog. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's my association with, with that sort of uh, love. I used to lo- I like to just go out and pat dogs. Uh, so anyway, you're around children, and there is a correlation to this, even if you don't have a child. The truth is true, and how it applies in one situation is how it applies in all situations. Now, all over America, there are parents running after their teenagers, screaming. They're running through the house after their teenagers, screaming, Once again, you didn't take out the garbage! I promise you, in households all over the country, or you didn't make your bed. And then, of course, there's the thing that goes on with the with the smaller kids. There's this keeping after the child. So we have a deep belief that closeness can hurt us. You can hear fairly intelligent people actually say this, that the risk you must take if you wish to draw closer to another person is the risk of the pain of rejection. There is no such risk. You cannot hurt yourself by increasing your devotion or trying in some gentle way to draw closer to another individual. You can hurt yourself, and we all do hurt ourselves, if we set up an expectation as to what is to result from that, if we say what the picture must look like after I've made this attempt, that will bitterly disappoint you. But you cannot be hurt by love. Love will not lead you to pain any more than light will lead you to darkness. It is an impossibility. But this basic belief that somehow we must maintain our distance spreads into every aspect of our life. And so you have this concept of parental distance. And it is such a sad, sad concept that the child's going to get out of control unless we keep our distance and maintain this air of authority and control. And so we get into this business of of, uh, scolding the child and keeping after the child. And this is why teenagers turn away. Don't you see? Don't you remember, in fact, that for your own mental sanity, you had to turn away from your parent or else you're going to go crazy because nothing you did was right. Your friends weren't right and the way you dressed wasn't right and you didn't study long enough with your homework and you didn't eat right and on and on and on. Where are you going tonight and so forth? Do you remember that? And so, of course, the parent has to run after the child in order to tell it this because the child is trying to maintain its sanity. And it accomplishes nothing. The control, of course, isn't the love. The the parent is trying to recapture the love. And they think it has something to do with the control. And yes, yes, the children were so trusting when they were young. Do you remember the little children, how trusting they were? Did you see, some of you all see John come up here just 
just before the uh, service began and hold out his finger to me. He had hurt his finger and he wanted me to kiss it. Now what trust, what greater trust can there be than that? And so you need no distance from anybody. Distance will not help you. Distance will not keep you from getting hurt. Now, it would have hurt me if I had, after kissed, having kissed his uh, uh, finger, if I had wanted him to say, What a some healer! Wow! Because <laughs> he didn't. He just turned around and walked off. Didn't say a word about it. Didn't say thank you or anything. <clears throat> One more thing about children. Monsters, monsters come up. What do you do if the child tells you about the monster? It's exactly the same thing that you do. In that exercise, just a, just a, a few minutes ago, what you did was you took the thought and you looked at it. You remembered your true purpose and what happened? The thought disappeared or dissipated, weakened, didn't it? And so that's what you do with a monster. Always take fear into consideration. Never try to talk someone out of their fear. Never tell anyone, an adult or a child or anyone else, that their fear is irrational and they don't need to fear this. It will not do anything except keep them from telling you about their fears in the future. That's the only effect it's going to have. It will not decrease their fear. All fear is irrational. Our fears are irrational. And so telling someone their fear is irrational does nothing but have them look at their fear. Have the child describe the monster. Oh, really? What did it look like? Really? What did it do, what did it do then? And so forth. And you will see the child become happy as it looks at the monster. There is no monster. There is no ego. There is no hindrance to going home. There are no difficulties for you uniting with your father. There is no there is no hindrance whatsoever to you your feeling close to other people. Look at what appears to be the hindrance without trying to change it. Just look at it and it will begin to dissipate. 